Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT, because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes, and guises, from the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer, which is why no matter what line of work you're in, they've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest wi-fi access for customers bt's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy whatever your business bt's got your back search bt's got your back hello and welcome to the red box politics podcast in the times i'm matt chorley we asked you last week to let us know where you're listening and some of you have posted them on itunes so special hello to alistair bassett in bratislava hills mogany in new zealand and matt mad who just says he wants a red box mug well we gave you a chance to win a red box mug last week matt moore was lamenting the lack of jokes about giva hofstadt we asked you to send some in and we'll be judging the best or at least the least worst later in the program for now, this week, I'm joined by Times columnist Ian Martin, who says we are currently in Theresa May's darkest hour. Alice Thompson thinks she might know how to solve the housing crisis. But first, Faye Schlesinger, the Times head of news, joins the dots on the sexual harassment scandal. A dotted line can be drawn between Gavin Williamson, Michael Fallon, Toby Young and the President's Club. The alleged misdemeanours differ enormously, but suspicions about the most low-level cases are fuelled by shock over the more serious. Each case triggers fears of society becoming overly prudish, yet revelations of the worst misogyny and abuse, in plain sight and against a backdrop of Harvey Weinstein, make so-called overreaction inevitable. I think Gavin Williamson, Michael Fallon, Toby Young and the President's Club, that sounds like the worst night out ever. <laughs> <laughs> Even for Giles Corrin. <laughs> I hasten to add again, I mean... I guess the point I'm trying to make here is that what these men have been accused of, and in the case of the President's Club, many, many men, 360 of them, varies enormously. But I think we're at a moment of reckoning in the way that we deal with all these things. And there is uh, either consciously or some some subconscious level a kind of a line to be drawn between them. I mean, just to, to recap some of these, Gavin Williamson is in the news at the moment because he has taken it upon himself to reveal an affair that he had, or a, a romance, an extramarital romance from 2004, way before he was in politics. He'd already talked to his wife about it. And then there are kind of questions building up, well, 
is it right to have had a relationship with somebody more junior than you? All these quite kind of quite prudish and um, and sort of haughty questions towards him, and questions over whether he's been totally honest. And then you move to Michael Fallon, which was um, he obviously had to stand down because of his behaviour towards women. There was touching of knee. There was a lunge at uh, uh, a journalist, a female journalist. Toby Young, if you remember, was defended to the hilt by the Prime Minister and everyone um, below um, over his tweets, which were about things like the size of women's breasts repeatedly late at night. And then you've got the President's Club, which is the most serious by far, where there was kind of full-on groping and just horrific behaviour towards women, which I really thought had disappeared kind of a, a few decades ago um, and was not continuing, surrounded by these kind of very preeminent um, men. But I think... The, the, what you might see as an overreaction to Gavin Williamson, these questions being asked, is you have to tie it to the fact that these things that we thought were gone, you know, Harvey Weinstein is another one we just thought that was that was primeval, basically, are still there. So we, we've got kind of every right to, to cast aspersions over and, and doubt the, the veracity um, and the integrity of people doing much more junior things. And I'm afraid that they are getting swallowed up into this kind of this big fear in society maybe I'm, I'm arguing that's justifiable because of the, the worst um, examples. Why is it that we thought it was gone? When is it because what was normal, in inverted commas, workplace practice ended up happening in someone's office or a men-only dinner or in a hotel suite? So it was not as in plain mm. sight. But why, why was it that we were all so surprised? Because of the public statements. I mean, on the surface, you now have a lot of... Um, discussion about things like pay quotas and the, the right things being said openly in meetings you know that no one would dare denigrate a woman for being a woman um, in any public place now so you assume that because that surface has has improved enormously that underneath has followed and what we see in these some circumstances that hasn't happened at all it's hypocrisy Alice what, what do you make of it is it is it is an overreaction in cases maybe like Gavin Williamson just part and parcel of the times that we live in and it's a, it's a bit like MPs expenses the, the ones that were accused of minor misdemeanors actually got lumped into it because it was all about a culture is it yeah, I think it is a sign of the times because I think actually unlike that I think we sort of half knew that there were things like spearmint rhino we half knew that there were you know all men's clubs still I and mean, there are quite a lot of all men's clubs still and then there's Rochdale there's a whole series of of issues that surrounded that we never really latched onto until now and actually the president's club has been going for so long we and no one has really said oh my god that's appalling and i think actually when you look at female pay you know i think the bbc actually been incredibly old-fashioned about the way they've handled that and it's been rather extraordinary that they haven't immediately said you know hands up this is dreadful they sort of fudged it all and when the women haven't been allowed to talk about it and it actually still feels incredibly old-fashioned and I think there is a sense that people don't want to talk about it, but half know it's there. And I think that's actually more, in a way, it's more disquieting for women. And also there is, as Faye would probably say, there's this, the, the younger generation's sense that there are things that you can do and things that you can't do are quite different sometimes from people sort of over 50, this sort of old generation of feminists. And there, there is that clash as well. So you end up with this terrible situation where women start fighting each other when, in fact, they should all be trying to fight the same thing. Well, what seems bizarre about the President's Club is that lots of these people involved, you know, people from the city or from the world of property and they're always saying that they don't read newspapers and pay attention to any of that kind of nonsense. Um, if they had done, <laughs> then they might have had some warning that things have been <laughs> changing in the last six months or a year. That's the, the striking thing. How could you go to a dinner like that and not feel, uh, feel that there was something rather strange 
about the entire setup in the con- in the context of, uh, of of Weinstein particularly. I mean, it might just be that I've had had a sheltered life, but it just sounded to me like an awful evening. A whole load of blokes sitting around talking about how much money they've got, with the only women who were t- willing to talk to them were the ones who were being paid to do so. It just seemed utterly bizarre. But maybe that's just. Well, as Giles Corrin wrote in the paper at the weekend, it's um, you know men together without the influence of women are generally a pretty pretty dreadful, pretty <laughs> dreadful gathering. Yeah. Usually, not always, not always. I do think it's perfectly legitimate for the for there to be clubs if a bunch of men want to come together mm. to be members of a private members club. You know, it's but yeah, absolutely, about absolutely kind fine. Of going down the road of let's cancel all all single gender clubs. You know, women's institute or Hindu stag do's. You know, I mean, if somebody said they were willing to ban stag do's, I'd 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 be tempted. They go on for days. Any sort of forced fun, they go on for days and days and days, and you always end up with somebody's like brother-in-law. who you'll never see again until the wedding. Until the wedding. You'd have to have all the same conversations about his, <laughs> his Aldi all over again. But, I mean, on the surface, like, the fact that Labour sacked Lord Mendelssohn for attending the um, President's Club did seem to me an overreaction. I'm, I'm defending overreaction on the one hand, but equally, I think from the accounts we've had, it was possible to be there and not see the groping. But still, you've still got women... On- right from the off being paid to wear black underwear and being paid to have some side boob and being paid to wear these incredibly skimpy outfits so that i mean i'm I'm sort of horrified that as journalists we didn't spot this earlier because i mean the ft is not a paper that's known for its undercover stings you know and yet <laughs> in it went and um in one evening it toppled this enormous institution I'm sure there have been no journalists attending at any point in the last <laughs> no, no, absolutely none, none. but so it what does ex- depress me that, that you've got all the things like i mean it's incredibly boring but in some ways, but you have got all these issues like two women being killed a week in domestic violence cases, and and we call it domestic, but actually it's not very domestic. It sounds rather sort of cosy when you say that, but it is just, you know, th- these are murders, and we, we don't really go on and on about that, and those are women dying, and I find it rather extraordinary that actually dressing up in underwear is seen as that bad, when there are all sorts of issues that really, you know, people do get away with there much was, more easily. There was part of me when the story broke, and that night when the 10 o'clock news was leading with Theresa May being appalled by it, I did sort of think there's plenty of other stuff that we never hear that Theresa May is appalled by. But for some reason, this had taken on extra special significance. With your sort of head of news hat on, I want to ask you whether you thought the fact it was in the FT made it seem like a bigger story than if it had been a sort of fruity spread in the sun. Yeah, I totally agree with that. And I said it from the off. I mean, they didn't have any names, for example, of individuals who who had groped. And they'd obviously tried to get hold of some people, not been able to and chosen not to name them. And I said when it first started breaking, I wonder if it will take off to that extent because there was very little evidence. But I think the FT has rightly built up a very, very reputable, you know, powerful name. Um, And I think if that had been done by a tabloid newspaper, there would have been people casting aspersions over the journalism, you know, well, they were kind of maybe egging people on and things, probably wrongly, to be frank. But but I think the fact it was the FT, I mean, the speed at which, the fact that WPP immediately pulled, then Great Ormond Street, wrongly, I feel, pulled all their money out of it as well. Um, meant it, I mean, it folded in a day, which was an extraordinary um, speed. But I, I think we do need to be careful not to kind of self-congratulate and go, that's all over, we're done now, because it's clearly not. Um, there must be much more under the surface if that was happening so much in plain sight. And so is there a role for politicians in this? We have got a woman prime minister who likes to play on this idea that this sends a message. I think when she went to Saudi Arabia, she said just the fact she was a woman alone was sending a message. She didn't need to raise all of that human rights business. (laughs) Um, What is the role for politicians in that? Or is it broader than that? 
I was thinking that, you know, we'll, we'll come on to later May and her enormous strength at the moment. That's a joke. Um, <laughs> um, and, and how actually this is a time, given that I think we're at a moment of reckoning that things are shifting and changing, that you would think she would grab hold of that. But if I were in May's shoes, I'd be unsure whether to do that. Do you make your gender central mm. to your role as prime minister or not? But, I mean, it could be very powerful. It could backfire. And, and there is still... Uh, misogyny out there so it could backfire for that reason or it could just backfire because she doesn't want to make it about being a woman she wants to be a leader Um, but I think other MPs have been very vocal female MPs and I think that's powerful Well but as we've moved on to um, Theresa May's uh, leadership that seems like a good time. Uh, Let's move on now to Ian Martin and what he calls Theresa May's darkest hour We're seeing the Tory party at its absolute worst right now and there's this widespread agreement that the Prime Minister is not up to the job among Tory MPs but they seem completely paralysed by fear when it comes to doing something about it. Now I think this leaves the country leaderless at a pivotal moment and you've only got weeks to go until the Brexit trade talks start Uh, and in the manner of those who acted in May 1940 the Tories need to find the courage to change leader. Well, so that's, that makes her Chamberlain rather than uh, Churchill. Yes, not a good comparison. <laughs> <laughs> yes. I mean, I th- I th- I, the similarity there, I think, is that in Darkest Hour, the, f- the film starring Gary Oldman, is, is, is the, f- the film in vogue at Westminster at the moment. I wonder if it has helped inspire Nicholas Soames, grand, <laughs> grandson of Churchill. And Boris. And Boris as well, who thinks he is Churchill Mark too. But the charge that's often laid against those who say that May should be removed is that you don't know exactly what comes afterwards. But I would simply observe that it wasn't clear precisely what was going to happen in May 1940 either. We know with the benefit of hindsight now that that turns out to have been the right choice. Churchill helped save Western civilization. The Americans come in, the Russians win in the East, and he's he's a hero. But if you look at it in real time... The Tory party was very, very sceptical about him, opposed to his appointment effectively. It's effectively the Labour Party, which won't serve under Halifax, which ensures that Churchill, against the odds, becomes Prime Minister. He's seen as a very risky choice, uh, difficult um, relations with his own party, background of Gallipoli, all of that sort of stuff, appalling position on India in the mid-1930s, which made him um, so unpopular. And he was then later almost kind of deselected. So I think sometimes you don't know what the outcome is, but you just have to, as Leo Amory and um, Tory MP and those on Labour benches did, sometimes you just have to act, you have to roll the dice, you have to create some sort of movement and momentum, and out of it get someone with some gumption who can lead. And the interesting thing was in the aftermath of the general election, when the Tories lost the majority, there was this sort of sense of, well, there is no one else and better the devil you know and it could be worse if we went for someone else. It feels like since Christmas, the sort of, could it be any worse? Mood seems to have taken hold. Literally almost anyone would be better. I think the trigger was the reshuffle. Yeah. Which... William Hague and others and other Tory grandees had mapped out before Christmas how to reshuffle. And what was expected was that the next generation of Tories, and they have some bright and talented people, would be fast-tracked. And some people who'd just come into Parliament would might be made ministers of state or even cabinet members to try and create some sort of future contest, a lineup of talent. That didn't happen. 
for reasons we understand, the those around the prime minister engineered a reshuffle which was designed to not promote talent. Well, and, th- and actually, some people some people were. I'm going to take issue with that. I think that was a, a bit of Herculean post balls up spin that having executed badly such a unambitious reshuffle they then tried to claim it was all part of a grand plan to hold why up. would you put dominic rob in um a job from but hell? why would you brief, if you if you thought that you want you but why would you brief to... that you were going to have a wide-ranging reshuffle all over christmas half well, a dozen minutes why brief moved? on the day before that uh, well, that, yeah. that you were going to have a you know Bre- a brexit minister for for no deal well whether it was by design or a yeah. mixture of cock-up or that's, conspiracy that's um you've ended up with a reshuffle which does not fast forward the talent doesn't create this opportunity for the for bright people to get some experience and I, I personally I think that that was the that was the trigger and people thought well if the Prime Minister is incapable of reshuffling properly and reorganizing uh, the other thing that lies right ahead of the brexit talks are only six to seven weeks away from phase two where Britain will have to be will have to map out what it wants the European Union which is completely confused about what the UK actually wants will say right. What's your opening gambit? And at the moment, the cabinet can't agree on it. The prime minister doesn't have the authority to to pick a position and try and lead. So I think the the situation is well. I, I used to call it suboptimal, but I'd say it's now critical. Alice, what are you hearing from Tory MPs and ministers about how long this apparently unsustainable situation can sustain for? Well, I'd blame the darkest animal on the end. Actually, I think it's incredibly influential. I think it's one of those that we look back and no one will quite know when they do their you know A level. You know, new GCSE question about causes of you know Brexit and going through it, but I do think as a film it's extraordinarily influential because you watch it and you think, oh, God, we must do that. You know, they acted, we must act, and the answer always comes back to Boris because he looks so like Churchill and acts so like Churchill. I'm thinking, oh well, God, let's give him a go. And the amount of MPs who've said to me, oh, you know. Maybe we should think about about Boris. And you want to go? No, please don't. Honestly, <laughs> he's got baggage and everything. I work with him. I know him really well. I'm very fond of him, but I am not convinced in any way that he could be leader. And he is not Churchill. He's written about Churchill. He's based himself on Churchill since a very young age. But he isn't. And I think if they're going to do anything, they need to start looking at people like Ruth Davidson. If they want to do something really dramatic and different, that that should be the answer to the darkest hour. It shouldn't be let's go for the next sort of rather jowly. <laughs> Type. But this is all assuming that we only have one party in this country and we don't. We've got Corbyn and Corbyn is, I think, the, the risk. You can make this argument that, oh, nothing could be worse than May. But for the Tories, what would be worse than May is, is losing mm-hmm. the next election. And surely that's the fear that, that in, we're already at a time of enormous instability. We would be regardless Brexiting, even if we had the most mm. the most powerful leader. I really feel that because it is it's something we've, we've not gone through before. Um, but aren't they just worried that if you rock the boat now we will end up with another election very soon because I don't think this country would probably be happy with taking on a new prime minister without going through that process pretty quickly and then and then there is a real ch- a real risk for the Tories that they will lose. But there have been quite a few examples of parties changing leader Callaghan Major didn't call an election until 92 Brown ran for how long through three years yeah without calling an election yeah. I, think I, I think I think it would be one. I think it would be difficult mm. Brenda from Bristol will voice will speak for the nation yes. again it would, but I think for you, right you're right it, it it would be a difficult sell but it's one of those things which I think if a new leader had some gumption they could kind of say look Brexit talks coming up that is the national priority there will be certainly be an election along probably in a couple of years it will probably have to be early because of uh, brexit first there is this uh, 
to deal with in a way that you wouldn't have had a general election in June 1940. I'm not saying this is like the Second World War, but it is a... Um, in peacetime, it's of a similar scale. It's a similar kind of challenge. So that, I think, would just be down to, to someone to just tough out and then be judged on whether or not they could actually deliver a coherent Brexit. I mean, the problem is really that we just don't know what the UK position is. I mean, I think the UK has, you know, the UK position is not as uh, weak as people contend, but it requires a bit of leadership and someone to actually put an offer on the table and say, right, let's talk. There are going to be some compromises, but this is what it looks like. It makes it worse, doesn't it? Because you are looking at Macron with sort of handing out horses and handing out tapestries and then you look (laughs) at Theresa May and you're thinking, you know, what are you doing? And actually it's becoming an embarrassment. We've got her going to China. We're thinking, you know, actually we're not filled with glee at the prospect of her going off and trying to sell Britain abroad. I think it's, it's almost an embarrassment now, isn't it? Yeah, the to- Trump, her, her, her dealings with Trump, mm. I think, are embarrassing. The number of times we've had to run page one stories about Willy won't he, Willy won't he, Willy won't he come to Britain. It would be fine if May was either on either side, kind of either like, right, I want him, I'm going to woo him. We're out of, we're out of the EU. We really need to strike a fantastic trade deal with, with the US, and we're going to, we're going to effectively roll out the red carpet. Or if she went the other way and said, you know what, his, his opinions are really problematic, and I'm not going to woo him too much. But she's done both, mm. and, and, and that again makes her look incredibly weak. And you're right end up beside Macron who is kind of you know all systems go and you know yeah. can can tell can make Trump think that he's hearing things he wants to hear and and say something yeah, else to France exactly. is is very is is powerful and impressive so if not her and if not Boris isn't the problem then comes back to then who Ruth Davidson I think is almost the only and one how does that work in practice well that's what I'd like to know is I think that Nicholas Soames is very much backing her as one person actually I think quite a lot of people are backing her quietly and if you talk to MPs quite a lot of them will go back and say it. even some of the most pro-Brexit MPs are saying you know what actually she's she's just got something in a way that, that a lot of the other but MPs she's compl- I mean she's completely untested in having to do anything more than sitting on a bison or whatever it was that she <laughs> there's also there's also the licking an ice cream there's yeah. also the complication that, that she she does want to fight the election in Scotland and feels as though the next Holyrood election and feels duty bound to do that and then also wants to when if she does come south or I say when if to do that for a Scottish seat which requires a UK general election if you see what I mean so she would want she lives in Edinburgh now she wouldn't want to do a sort of cut and run to Surrey Mm -hmm. it wouldn't be wouldn't be a very good look to a safe seat I think she would rather build a seat in Edinburgh which is now doable Thanks to thanks to her efforts in uh, you know in the Scottish Parliament. Do you think it's possible that we the UK could have a Scottish Prime Minister again, given how much has been devolved? The, yes, I the, think the, it, you I'd... could have somebody leading a government who, from Westminster, did, making decisions, most of which have no effect on them. That was one of my concerns uh, about devolution. I was a devo sceptic, but I, I think it's I think the British system is pretty good at putting up with. Internal contradictions. I don't, I don't think. I don't. I, you know. I don't. I don't think it's not. It's not a system that ever really makes perfect sense. I think that would be just about um, just about wearable. I think if 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 Ruth Davidson is not feasible, you then really come down to Michael Gove, um, who I would uh, put money on at the moment, uh, or Hunt as a compromise candidate or Amber Rudd as a camp compromise candidate if she wants wants to. You might see, a sort of, when I say dream ticket, you might say it's a nightmare ticket, but <laughs> if you see something like Gove and Amber Rudd 
Yeah. With Amber Rudd in a Deputy Prime Minister domestic agenda, agenda domestic reform role. That would be feasible. I think it's probably, I could be wrong, but I think it's probably too early for one of the youngsters to come through. Um, well, Gavin's a bit busy with his saying, other... Yeah. Well, Gavin, <laughs> has, I mean, yeah, it's the most extraordinary it story. I mean, it is, it's been called at Westminster, isn't it? You're a death of a fireplace salesman. <laughs> but the, um, <laughs> but I, I think, yeah, I think we can rule out Gavin Williamson. For the um, time being. Uh, I think forever, actually. Forever? You yeah. think this is done mm. for him? Yeah, because I of think, this revelation, really. I just think that I think he made a loss of enemies as chief whip. I think it was rather odd in the way in which he went from yeah the thing that PBS speak, to speaking to people whip. over the weekend. The thing that still annoys the most is the way he became defence secretary. Mm. That's very that's, odd. That's it's a curious. It's a curious story. I don't think the the original incident, such as it is, hence the reference to selling fireplaces. I think I don't care about. It. I don't think most people will care about. But there are some very curious, strange things going on around it, which are concerning people. So having identified Theresa May's flaws, in a moment we'll move on to what she might be able to actually do while she's still in number 10. We'll be back after this short ad. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Welcome back to the Times Red Box podcast. I'm joined this week by Faye Schlesinger, Ian Martin, and this is Alice Thompson. Well, the British love Monopoly, location, 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 the National Trust, Lego and the late Mr Ikea. We're a nation of homeowners. Only we're not actually anymore. Fewer people own homes than at any time in the last 30 years. Theresa May is the ultimate maidenhead NIMBY, a former aide tells me. She won't want to do anything. But in a series on housing for The Times this week, Rachel Sylvester and I talked to everyone from Saji Javid to Sadiq Khan about how to pass go and get building. Well, the Prime Minister did say, I think, in her between coughs during the famous conference speech, she did say she wanted to make home ownership her mission or house building her mission. But she keeps saying it, but nothing really seems to to happen is it because she's identified it as an issue but won't commit to what that really means in practice i think there are two things i think one she comes from a maidenhead constituency which is probably one of the most nimby constituencies in the country partly because everyone wants to live in the home counties and partly because it's um 
got some rather nice green fields around and she doesn't really want to upset her neighbours. She also lived in a vicarage as a child. She just hasn't really seen some of the housing problems people have. And in fact, talking about Ruth Davidson, she's only just bought a house, age 38. So she's much more aware of housing problems than Theresa May would be, who bought a house when she was much younger with her husband and it wasn't as big an issue then. And I think she likes to say things, but it's also incredibly difficult to do. So George Osborne's tried to do it. Um, you know, Sajid Javid's trying to do it now. It's it's not as easy as you think it's going to be. And it's not just sort of supply-demand. It's There's so many different factors that come into play. And we are, most of us, still quite nimbyish as well, not just Teresa. So as part of your series, and speaking to everyone, have you uh, alighted upon an idea that might work? Or is it actually lots of mm. small, slightly boring ideas? No, rather no, no than... we're going to have a six-point blueprint. But you'll have to actually either look online or read it to see what the blueprint is see what the blueprint is so we will sort it out for you <laughs> just give us three days a lot of times people have been on this not just rachel and i have to say it's the whole property section and all the political team everyone's been in fact i'd say property is extraordinary in that almost every single person has a view on it because every single person in some ways either renting trying to rent buying a house you know you know and if not they're down at ikea getting flat bags but the failure to, to deal with this problem, and I don't, solve it's probably pretty tough, but even, you know, just to, to, to get anywhere near the targets for house building each year is, is astounding. And, and it goes to what Ian's talking about with, with, with May's failure to grab hold of something and, and, and deliver. Um, if you look at um, the fact that we had Corbyn saying yesterday that he would seize, I think it was 8,000 empty homes. I mean, that gives you some sense of the fact that Labour hasn't even got a, a yeah. plan really to, to build to the extent that we need it. We did a really interesting story a few months ago about um, how developers promise a proportion of affordable housing whenever they create a new development. So say they're, um, they're planning to build um, uh, 10,000 houses, an enormous estate, and they say 20% of this will be affordable housing. And time after time, they will dilute the amount mm. of affordable housing that they do. And, and basically, the ombudsman has to wave it through because they're they're over a barrel they can't by the time they've kind of got two years down the plan and they're ready to start start getting the shovels in then and, and the the developers say well now actually if you look at you know we look at costs now we can't possibly afford to do 20 percent affordable we'll have to do four percent and they say well we we can't do anything about it and it's those kind of some of them are quite mm. boring but they're that one is i mean the failures. viability tests are extraordinary so mm. they do end up building two or three percent affordable housing having promised that because you say 20, 30% of affordable housing. And actually, funny now, Sadiq Khan in London is saying we need 50% affordable housing in London. And the builders all say, oh, no, we can't possibly do that. You won't see a single house built in London. But in fact, the other problem is that it, this is government land. So, you know, a lot of it that is government land, not all of it, but, you know, there's quite a lot in London that's being sold off. Holloway Prison's a classic example going through at the moment. That actually you don't need to sell it to the highest builder who's going to say, I want all this money and in return I'm going to build luxury flats. You could actually say, we will only sell it to you if you put some more affordable housing in and if we can use it because actually it just needs to be more joined up you need to say to the justice department you can't make the highest amount you possibly want to make we need to have some of those as you know, housing for nurses doctors and you know, prison officers to a certain extent Ian, do you think, one of the things that always strikes me is that we get through housing ministers. A new <laughs> one seems to come along every yeah. six months. And it's always somebody, almost always somebody who's on the up. So we've sort of given them to be sort of enthusiastic and ambitious. But then they get moved on by the time they've sort of met everyone on their brief. Yeah, I don't really, I don't really see how you could properly tackle it unless you made it a cabinet rank post and put someone in there for four or five years, maybe even longer, and gave them a kind of great rebuilding I mean, I, I'm fascinated by the way in which the problem is different in different parts of the country, and so much of it 
when which we talk about it is about the southeast and London, which is really driven by prices in prime London had until the recent dip almost doubled. That's not a function of an increase in population. That's a function of QE uh, and it's a function of long term low interest rates and money being um, being cheap. So I think there's been a bubble created in the southeast and, and London, which is probably in the process of bursting or at least being being corrected but i just don't think it can be disentangled from from monetary policy when i hear the phrase housing crisis there's obviously there are a series of as alice was saying different you know different problems in different parts of the country but i think we are heading for a bit of a smash on um in terms of the southeast and london sorry to anyone who actually owns a house in the southeast and <laughs> london but um and i think we it's understandable why policymakers did it. The Bank of England and the Treasury were determined post-2008 to avoid recession turning into a depression. So monetary policy and associate and other policies were used, which have created um, something of a you know crazy bubble. I mean, after the worst financial event in 70 or 80 years, as I say, house prices have risen in the southeast substantially. And I think it's now just got to the point where it's so far apart from um, the wages and what people can actually afford that there's a cor- I think there is a market correction coming. And Alice, does there need to be a reset in the sort of <clears throat> political thinking? That the, the, a lot of the political and media conversations about buying, and in fact, the most the big eye-catching thing we've seen from the government was them scrapping stamp duty for first-time buyers. It's all about getting on the property ladder. And the, does, do we need to try to ditch that as a culture and? and talk more about renting i've thought that but actually the more we talk to people about <coughs> renting the problem is that we have a very different system of rental here when you become very infantilized i think when you rent in britain it sounds terrible but in germany you very much have to look after your own property and you have to make sure if anything happens you, you 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 treat it well you do the repainting jobs you get the washing machine here if something goes wrong you talk to your landlord um conversely the, the problem is that a lot of the houses aren't very nice and aren't, aren't in, of a good standard which they are in say Germany or in France and most of the continent they have a much higher standard of rental so I think there is something important in Britain that we have a very strong ethos of buying your house and looking after it and that's what Margaret Thatcher found and I think they are right they do need to get the home ownership up again and I think both Labour and Tories and I think you need cross-party support on this because actually there are all sorts of minor issues that are really clogging up the system that they could change quite quickly well, I'd be interested to see if your six-point plan is taken up by the government. Our notoriously imaginative and bold, courageous Prime Minister. Uh, I'm sure we'll, we'll pick up the ball in one minute. Now, before we go, well, last week we were discussing the uh, dearth of right-wing comics. Uh, Matt Moore discussed why are there no jokes about Giva Hofstadt, and we said we'd give away a red box mug if anyone could send in a Giva Hofstadt joke. Um, I've got a few of them. I'm not. I'm not making any comment on the quality just because I'm reading them out. But these are the, I won't say best, but the least bad. Goff Moore just emailed in to say Giva Hofstadt is an anagram of Grave of Thy Dust. Uh, Benjamin Whitehead wrote on the prospect of a red box mug for Giva Hofstadt joke. Why would anyone want an almost entirely plain empty vessel produced overseas that when in use is barely able to hold water and even most times journalists wouldn't recognise it if they saw it sitting on their desk? I don't know, but the European Parliament still seems to like him. That's a Giva Hofstadt <laughs> mug joke. Martin Perry does... Uh, you can join in with this one. A knock, knock. Who's there? Giva Hofstadt. Hi. No. Giva <laughs> Hofstadt. Do you not know that was knock knock joke works? Giva Hofstadt. Who? Thank you, Alice. Giva uh, uh, Hofstadt. Who? Exactly. That's why we don't do jokes about unknown politicians. And then Christopher. Oh, Christopher Differ. This is Christopher Differ's 
Guy walks into a Glasgow bar and straight to the barman. Guy, I see you have a talent show. Barman says, yes, but what's your talent? The guy says, knowledge of the life and career of the Hoff. And the barman says, well then, gis your Hoff stat. Oh, good Lord. <laughs> <laughs> Gives you Hofstadt. Gives you Hofstadt. Yeah. So uh, of those, I think that that's last one is the best, the best one. one. Yeah, so it's, yeah, Christopher Differ, you, you are going to get what's left of the uh, one of the stock of red box mugs we haven't managed to shift yet. Um, please don't send in any more of those. That's the that's the message. Uh, that's all we've got time for in uh, this week's episode. Remember to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, where do uh, post us a review and tell us where you're listening. Sign up to my morning email at thetimes.co.uk forward slash red box. But for now, from Faye, Alice, Ian, Martin and me, Matt. Charlie is goodbye. Thank you for downloading. To discover more, head to thetimes.co.uk.